Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell with the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. We looked at Marianne Moore last time, and I said that we should do more, more, but there's actually a poet that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And before we do more Marianne Moore poetry, I want to get to her because uh, she's one of my favorite poets, especially recently in the last few years. Her story, kind of like Sylvia Plath's story, is so entrancing and intriguing that often the poetry is uh, seen as secondary to just the story of the woman herself. But her poetry is fantastic as well, and we'll look at one of her most important poems, and a poem that is the source of not a little bit of controversy. The poet I'm talking about is Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley is a poet you may have heard of in American history class, if not literature class. Wheatley is unique for several reasons. First of all, we don't know when she was born. Probably she was born in the early 1750s, some say probably about 1753, but no one actually knows or recorded when she was born. One of the reasons we don't know when she was born was because she was born in Gambia. She was born on the west coast of Africa and was stolen by slave traders and put aboard a slave ship and taken to Boston. In Boston, she was sold to the Wheatley family. And in fact, the ship that she was on, the slave ship, was called the Phyllis. The family that bought her was called the Wheatleys, and so was called Phyllis Wheatley. We don't know what her actual name was. If this was just a story about a girl who had been stolen and taken to America and sold to a family, uh, it might be enough to incense us, might be enough to arouse that old abolitionist spirit within us. But what happens to Phyllis Wheatley after she's sold to the Wheatleys in Boston is just as incredible as this horrible, tragic story of her childhood. When she gets to Boston, it's said that she was very sickly, Uh, She was missing her front teeth. It looked like she was in a bad way. She might not survive. She was bought by the Wheatleys, and she lived with the Wheatleys. The Wheatleys weren't plantation owners. They were a family that lived in Boston and were looking for, I think, the equivalent of a maid. And so because slave trade was legal in Boston, they bought her. But what ended up happening was interesting. Instead of just putting her to work, they started educating her alongside their children. And in fact, the eldest Wheatley girl, Mary, started giving Phyllis lessons, not just in English, but in classical languages. It's thought that she probably read Virgil and Horace and uh, Cicero in Latin. And it's thought that she was also exposed to people like Milton, people like Alexander Pope. In fact, she was given an education, historians say and critics say, that would have been out of the ordinary even for a free white girl in Boston at that time, let alone a black slave. So Wheatley is a really interesting character. She's stolen, she's subjected to the abuses of the slave trade, And then she ends up getting a first-rate education while still enslaved. And this is one of the strange things about colonial New England, that it's a place where in just a few years we're going to have, of course, the 
hotbed of the American Revolution. We're going to have all all this writing come out of New England uh, about not just the abolitionist cause, but also the revolutionary cause. Wheatley is there for it, and she's a slave during all of these things. But because of the education she gets, and because of her natural genius, she starts writing poetry. And she starts writing poetry, not necessarily in imitation of uh, Horace and Virgil. She's not writing in dactylic hexameter, for example. She starts writing mostly iambic pentameter couplets. This would have been in the style of Pope and before him, Milton. And Phyllis's poetry starts becoming popular. It becomes popular not just in Boston, not just in New England, but it starts being popular in London. It starts being published transatlantically. And Wheatley publishes enough that she is ready to put together a collection of poetry. There is a countess who is willing to fund this, a countess uh, from London. And so Wheatley, still a slave, mind you, goes with one of the brothers of the Wheatleys, she goes to England and kind of goes on an author tour of London to celebrate the publication of her book, Poems on Various Subjects. So she has a book that is published in America and a book that is published in England in 1774. She has international celebrity. People like Ben Franklin write about her. People like Voltaire write about her. But she's still enslaved. And in fact, she's not freed until the late 1770s, a few years into the Civil, or the Revolutionary War. Her master had died some time ago, but her mistress finally dies. And upon her mistress's death, she is liberated. So she experiences something that was very rare in colonial New England at all, popular literary celebrity for poetry, and she experiences it as a slave. That in and of itself, I think, is enough to make us interested in her story. And I think when we look at her poetry, we most want to see what was she thinking? What was her experience? How strange it must have been to be a black slave who had experienced kidnapping and abuse, who then ended up getting a first-rate education, but getting a first-rate education by her enslavers. All the complexities, all the complicities of the colonial slave trade in the North are bundled into this story. And probably the most famous poem that she wrote and that she collected into the poems on various subjects in 1774 is a poem, it has a long title, very characteristic of poem titles in the 1700s. The title of the poem is this, To the Right Honorable William, Earl of Dartmouth, His Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for North America, etc. Usually, People just refer to this as to the right honorable William Earl of Dartmouth or the Earl of Dartmouth poem. What she does in this poem is reflect upon this strange situation that she finds herself in. One, it's 1772 when she writes it. Dartmouth has just been appointed to the Secretary of State for North America by His Majesty, King George III. I don't know all the details about Dartmouth, but from what I can tell, it seems like Dartmouth was sympathetic to the revolutionary cause. If it's 1772, we know that things are starting to get into motion that will lead to the breakout of actual violence in 1775. Uh, at Lexington and Concord. So we see in this poem, and pay attention to it, 
this idea that revolution is coming, but this idea of revolution because of oppression, because of even oppression that might be termed slavery, that is also mixed up in this other experience and other life that Phyllis sees, which is that she herself is enslaved to people who themselves are starting to feel oppression and wanting to throw off slavery. Once again, very complex, very, I think, difficult to even begin to understand what it would be like to be Phyllis Wheatley. Let's read this poem and see what's going on in her and see what's going on in her view of, of this very complicated state of America in 1772. To the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, His Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for North America, etc. Hail, happy day, when smiling like the morn, fair freedom rose New England to adorn. The northern clime beneath her genial ray, Dartmouth, congratulates this thy blissful sway. Elate with hope, her race no longer mourns. Each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns, while in thy hand with pleasure we behold the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. Long lost to realms beneath the northern skies, she shines supreme while hated faction dies. Soon as appeared the goddess long desired, Sick at the view, she languished and expired. Thus from the splendors of the morning light, the owl in sadness seeks the caves of night. No more, America, in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance unredressed complain. No longer shall thou dread the iron chain which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made and with it meant to enslave the land. Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung. Whence flow these wishes for the common good by feeling hearts alone best understood? I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case. And can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway? For favors past, great sir, our thanks are due. And thee we ask thy favors to renew, since in thy power, as in thy will before, to soothe thy griefs, which thou didst once deplore. May heavenly grace the sacred sanction give to all thy works, and thou forever live, not only on the wings of fleeting fame, though praise immortal crowns the patriot's name, but to conduct to heaven's refulgent fane, May fiery coursers sweep the ethereal plain and bear thee upwards to that blessed abode where, like the prophet, thou shalt find thy God. So this is a, a longer poem, and we're not going to go through it line by line with necessarily the exact detail that we might go through a shorter poem. Uh, so I want to kind of summarize the first two stanzas and then look at stanzas three and four with a little more detail. So the first stanza 
starts generally celebrating this appointment of Dartmouth. And if you're Dartmouth, and, and like I said, I want to do more research into what exactly Dartmouth's views were. But if you're Dartmouth and you read this, I think you see very quickly that Wheatley is putting a lot of pressure rhetorically on Dartmouth to ease the oppression upon the colonists that George's government is arguably putting. Now, of course, there's great arguments as to the real economic reasons behind things like the taxes that are going on to uh, New England and the colonies. I'm not a historian. I won't get into that. But there's this rhetorical high note that seems to put a lot of stock in Dartmouth's ability to free the American people, honestly. Hail, happy day, when smiling like the morn, fair freedom rose New England to adorn. The northern climb beneath her genial ray, Dartmouth congratulates thy blissful sway. Elate with hope, her race no longer mourns. Each soul expands, each grateful bosom burns, while in thy hand with pleasure we behold the silken reins and freedom's charms unfold. So she's saying, the day smiles, freedom is rising on New England, the whole climate of the North is congratulating you, the earth itself, the land itself, is celebrating Dartmouth. I almost get the feeling that there's a, a subtle hint here, hey, you better not let us down, buddy. We're putting a lot of stock in you. Now, this isn't just a poem written to someone who she has hopes for or she has similar political ideals for. The Countess who funded the publication of Wheatley's first book in London was actually friends with Dartmouth. So Phyllis herself feels a little indebted to Dartmouth and his friends. Dartmouth's sort of aristocratic circle in London is responsible for patronage to Wheatley. So in one sense, she's kind of returning a favor here. And there's, there's a little bit of mutuality. They're putting trust in her. They're publishing her poems in London. They wouldn't do that for just any American poet, let alone an enslaved poet. And there were plenty of detractors, as you can imagine, that saw Phyllis Wheatley as uh, a fraud, some people say her work was probably written by some white man and passed off as by a black slave so that they could gain notoriety. In fact, Phyllis's master got a lot of his influential friends together in, in Boston and wrote a sort of front piece to Phyllis's first collection attesting this was actually written by Phyllis. We have sat there and watched her compose poetry. This is by her. It's not a fraud. Yes, it's genuine. So there was a lot of doubt going on. And so Phyllis, I think, was grateful to Dartmouth and to his countess friend for believing in her and really helping turn her into an international celebrity. She's also not being too easy on Dartmouth. This first stanza is very much a, you're going to help us get free, right? Now, the turn in the poem, and this is where a lot of people see the real importance in the poem. If this had just been a sort of, yay, here's a government official, uh, please 
be nice to us. It might be something uh, along the lines of poems written about Cromwell during the Republican period in the 17th century that said, hey Cromwell, really glad you're in charge. You're going to be nice to us, right? But Wheatley takes it a step further. After she gives a few more ideas about all of New England is celebrating, faction is dying, freedom is dawning, she then has this turn about line 15. She says this, No more America in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance unredressed complain. No longer shalt thou dread the iron chain, which wanton tyranny with lawless hand had made, and with it meant to enslave the land. So she kind of turns to America now and says, you're not going to have to worry anymore about tyranny. Now, that's interesting because it's written in 1772. We know things are going to get a lot worse in the next three years, and that's going to prompt the violence that breaks out at Lexington and Concord and then becomes, of course, a colonies-wide and international war. And then she has this second turn at line 20. It turns from a, America is celebrating you, Dartmouth. Now, America, you can rest easy because Dartmouth is here. She then turns to Dartmouth himself and speaks more directly from sort of an eye to you register. She says, should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood. So she's saying, maybe you wonder why I care about freedom. She's just given us a crash course in how to write about freedom in a popular and effective way for 19 lines. And then she reflects upon her own poetry. This is one of the wonderful things that can take place in poetry. And I think in the end, as we saw in Moore, is often what makes a poem memorable. When the poet has shown how great a poet they are, how they can celebrate, how they can lift our hearts or break our hearts or both, and then they turn to meditate on poetry itself or on the subject at hand and try and give us an insight into why am I doing this? Gregory does that in Ace Metra. You might wonder why I write it all. So she's saying, why am I celebrating freedom? Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good by feeling hearts alone best understood? I, young in life by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. There are moments in Wheatley where she writes about her parents, and it's honestly heartbreaking. How much would she have remembered them? We don't know. But she was born in Gambia, or some say maybe, maybe more in Ghana, on the west coast. All of that coast was uh, sort of awash with slave trade. It was it was a very, very lucrative business to be in, to have a slave ship that just went from the Gambian coast to the Caribbean or to the east coast of America and back. She's taken from her parents and this little portrait, I mean, it's not long, she doesn't go into detail, but she gives us enough, I think, to trouble us deeply what pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. And then she contrasts that with, the, with the, the kidnapper of the slaves. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. I kind of like how she says, what pains were in my mother's breast, how cold it must have been to steal me from my father. She moves from a meditation on her mother to a meditation on her father, 
and she juxtaposes her father here from a father seized with that soul by no misery moved. Likely it was a man who stole her. And there's almost this tug of war you see her caught between. She's been being stolen by a white man from the black man that is her father. It's, it's, a, vivid, it's a vivid description. And it's a description that must have been shocking, I think, to the readers of her poetry. Some prominent readers, including Thomas Jefferson, didn't particularly care for Phyllis Wheatley. Some of them had poetic reasons. Oh, she sounds too much like Pope. Oh, I've kind of read this stuff before. But I think at its heart, it's uncomfortable to hear poetry written by someone who your whole society is organized to keep enslaved, and in fact, to keep uneducated, to keep from achieving what she has achieved. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of abolitionists use Phyllis Wheatley in their arguments that, look, it's ridiculous to think that the black man is inferior to the white man when it comes to cultural refinement, comes to educational or intellectual ability. Look at Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley is an international superstar, a genius of poetry. And here she is indicting the slave trade that Boston and everywhere south depends on for a large part of its economy. Of course, New England would eradicate slavery much sooner than the southern colonies. But this is some politically fraught poetry. And it's politically fraught not because she's giving a diatribe about the rights of man. She's giving us a very real image of her being stolen from her parents. So let's keep going. Such, such my case, she says, and can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway. So this, this little, it's about 11 lines, this turn from line 20 to line 31. It's this beautiful aside that has become, I think, probably 11 of the most important lines in revolutionary era American poetry. It's a woman just kind of taking the boxing gloves off and saying, look, why do I want America to be free? Because I'm not free and it sucks. I know what it's like to be oppressed and I don't want other people to feel that. Some might say this is, this is quite gracious of Wheatley. After all, she's asking for England to stop oppressing the people who own her. In fact, there's a long tradition, and Henry Louis Gates, the African-American literary historian and critic, he has an interesting passage in his book, The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, where he tracks the history of criticism of Wheatley for going too easy on Boston society. After all, she's praising this white man who is in power in a world that doesn't let her be free. Now, an interesting thing about the, the publication of this poem is this poem comes out in Poems on Various Subjects, which is printed in London in 1774, and she goes and does the author tour. Um, actually, when she got to England for her author tour, a year before, there had been a landmark court case that basically had said, if a slave that belongs to a, a slaver has been brought by the slaver to London from the American colonies and the slave runs away, the slave is free and their owner cannot take them back to America and make them still be a slave. So Wheatley 
is actually in a really interesting legal situation here. Soon after she writes this poem, she goes to London and a lot of people say, was in fact explicitly told, hey, if you stay here and let your brother slash owner go back to America, you'll be free. You'll be totally free. And she doesn't. She goes back to America. Now, she would be free within five years, but it's a very interesting choice that she makes. There's a loyalty to America that we might say America and American culture doesn't necessarily deserve. There's something in Wheatley that is so American that it sympathizes with an America that has not yet freed her because of America's own oppression by Britain. Like I said, it's complicated. Reams of ink has been spilled over the voice of the slave in American writing. But suffice it to say, later writers, people like Frederick Douglass, people like, uh, people like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, they have seen Wheatley as an early and very important voice, not just in American poetry, but in voicing black experience and the complexities of black experience. I think it's very fascinating to read poets who are, even if we don't know their context, poets of great power who are writing in a way that is transgressive to the law and legal system of the world in which they're writing. And in fact, I want to meditate for the next couple podcasts on illegal voices, on voices of poets throughout history who have spoken into worlds that don't just disagree with them, but might see them as legally inferior or even just plain illegal. I'm interested in that. And we have a lot of great examples of poets like that. Wheatley is one of our greatest. I encourage you, check out Wheatley. All the poets I share poetry by in this podcast, this is a tacit endorsement of their poetry. But I think especially Wheatley, because it's easy to dismiss her, and the 20th century too often dismissed her because she was seen as not necessarily talking about the right issues all the time or uh, being too soft on her owners. But if you are owned, if you are illegal, there's a danger in saying the wrong thing politically. You could be killed. And one of the things that I love about Wheatley and inspires me, a very comfortable, very not illegal person, comforts me, is her courage to say as much as she said. And her courage to say as much as she said in such beautiful and ringing poetry. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.